Welcome to another episode of GER Cafe. I'm your host, Lainey Dixon. We have part two today of our methods episode with Sebastian Long. We will be concluding our conversation that we started in part one of this series about what it can look like to move beyond the methods toolkit and shift our focus as researchers on the outcomes instead. What does that mean for us and how can we achieve it? Well, stay tuned if you want to learn more. Seb gives us a great overview to get caught up, so I'm not going to waste any more time. We have a lot to talk about, so grab your favorite drink and let's jump right in to today's episode. Here we are, part two. We are resuming the conversation. Seb is still here. If you're joining us only now, please go back and read and read maybe don't read, listen to part one, where we're really talking about um, kind of the initial steps of talking about methods. So you'll probably get some really great information if you only listen to this episode, but definitely recommend going back and visiting that first one, but then coming back and listening to us here. I gave you a couple of minutes because we're st we've still just been chatting this whole time. So... <laughs> Seb, can you give us a little bit of a rundown of kind of what we talked about in episode part one of this? Yeah, of course. Of course. Thanks. Thanks for that. All right. So in the first section, we talked about why uh, why people can get hung up on methods. So why it is that method seems to dominate the conversation and the, the mindset of especially early career researchers. Um, and we quickly moved on to why uh, that can become a problem and how the uh, getting hung up, hung up on methods is a, is a real risk to the quality of the work you're doing. And I propose that uh, the standard methods are a bit too rigid and they might not meet the team's uh, context. Methods are quite monocular, which is to say that they only really focus on laser focus on one particular portion of the game or one type of uh, fun or friction, uh, which can be a risk if they, they ha we haven't looked at other parts. Uh, Methods can also be a bit monolithic, which is to say they don't feel like they can be stopped if they've started. But in actual fact, we do need to retain some of that agility. Um, so those are all quite operational things. Uh, and the last things were a bit more uh, political or sociopolitical, which is about uh, winning credibility with the team. Methods will only get you so far in winning the trust of your colleagues. You have to be in the room and listening and a participant and, uh, and various other things, which is much more than methods allows you to do. Uh, we both agreed that methods aren't the most uh, important or powerful thing you can do as a researcher. In fact, increasingly as your career progresses, you're going to have many more conversations about research and things we should and shouldn't do rather than actually doing it. So 100%. it's important not to get too stuck up on uh, on methods. And lastly, that uh, if you're too hung up on executing methods, standard methods, then, uh, you know, huge global events like the pandemic or even just changes to the <laughs> team's size or budgets can you know really pull the rug out from underneath you. So you've got to be careful not to get too stagnant uh, yes. thinking about methods. All right. Thank you. That was a great recap. Highly recommend. Still going back and checking out that episode because obviously <laughs> there was a lot more conversation than like that two minute <laughs> recap, but it was really good. Um, so we wanted to move into kind of a little bit of a continuation of that. Right. So kind of all of those things you were discussing, really talking about assessing the, the risks of kind of the product or the, the, the game that we're that we're working on. Um, it's really looking at kind of what's important of 
communication, right? It's thinking beyond just kind of we're looking at the methods, we're there, we're an active participant in conversations, we're really leveraging communications with our team. It's not being super prescriptive, it's helping us be very agile. And all of those things are helping us kind of how we start to think beyond our work as the base being the methods. So want to throw the question out as the continuation <laughs> of all of this. So what does it look like when we when we do move beyond thinking about the confines of the method as kind of our primary piece of our toolkit? Pretty great. Uh, so in the last uh, episode, you talked about having that it is a realization. You do get to a point in your career where you're like, I 100%. cannot, I do not think I can move any further forward just by being better at executing research. I'm yep. as good as I need to be and conversations, uh, conversations change. And so uh, for me, I, I'm, I'm doing this a lot. I'm getting myself into teams because of the way that player research works uh, alongside a lot of different and diverse development teams. I'm finding myself, you know, being chucked into these development environments and, and very quickly having to pick up, well, what does a team need? What, what helps them drive the product forward today? What are the risks that are being talked about, ones that are being socialized among the team? But maybe more importantly, what are the risks that are not being socialized among the team? Like, are yep. there still risks to this product that the team haven't considered or overlooking or maybe have assumptions about that might actually be a better use of research time uh, than uh, the, the method that's being discussed? Um, so there's a couple of assumptions already. Um, I, th I think it's inherent to the point you made in the last episode about it, you do have to put in your 10,000 hours really before you get to this point. You're, you're probably already a, a, an expert in executing the core methods in games user research. Um, but you also have some sense, I suspect, of the limitations of those methods. You've, uh, yes. You're curious, you've experimented with them, you've tried things, they've worked, they haven't worked. Uh, you know, And you've talked about the um, profound experience in the last episode about your the diary study that had to be uh, carefully re-engineered halfway through to make sure it was delivering value. And, and those are really formative experiences in working out the sort of where, where the conversation about method stops and about risks uh, can start. For me, the, the, if there's one question or mindset or thing that happens to you that uh, typifies this transition, it's when a team comes to you and says, hey, we'd love to do this method. And your instant reaction is uh, actually no. Can you can we start off by talking about uh, what you want to know and why? Yes. And uh, why is this information helpful right now? Exactly. How do you, you plan on it? using it? Exactly, exactly. And that's then, uh, of course, you would have had to build some credibility with the team for them to answer that question. Of course, it's inherent. But at that point, you're starting your journey towards saying, you know, understanding the risk of the product might not be the surface level, but something something a little deeper. Yes, so absolutely. I built a, I have my own sort of mental model. It doesn't replace. Um, doesn't replace methods at all, but it sort of sits alongside methods to make sure that we're assessing the, the risks that a product can have. Um, it's not a, a unique uh, mental model to me. There are similar ideas in from IDEO and in the double diamond um, theory and all that sort of stuff and you know various project management. But for me, this is the one that stands up. It's just four simple like phrases. What, what are we going to use this uh, the data for? Four simple phrases that help me uh, work out the kind of methods that we need to answer, but more importantly, the outcomes. What are the outcomes that, the, yeah. that this piece of research should achieve? Because sometimes they don't look like um, the ones that are initially asked for. Well, elevating your knowledge, right? Yeah. I think one thing we were talking about in, in the break, kind of in between these two episodes, was thinking, okay, you're kind of going from 
executing, you're going mm -hmm. from thinking about the methods, and now we're elevating things to being much more strategic. It's being mm -hmm. much more strategic in the approach of how we think about mm -hmm. what we're delivering, why we're doing that thing, and kind of how it can provide that impact mm -hmm. for the team. And mm -hmm. you are thinking more about, like you said, that outcome rather mm -hmm. than just the, the means at which we get that information. Mm -hmm. So I posit there are, there are four key outcomes, I think, and most research, you know, most teams that come to speak to me or, you know, in, in research projects I've been involved in, they tend to slot into like one of these four outcomes. Either teams want to be inspired, they want to know more about, which is to say they want to know more about their player, they want to do some discovery type research or the competitors, so they want to be inspired. Or they want to be validated, just to say they want to make make the best bet, they want to make a, a, make it have some alignment on a particular choice. That could be a choice about green lighting and whole product, or it could be about a control yep. scheme or something else. So they want to be validated. Or they want to accelerate development, just to say they just want to make choices faster and prove what they've done is good and move on. Or they want to polish, which is to say they've made 99% of all the choices and invented, invested 99% of all the money they're going to into this product, but they've got that 1% to make some small changes that they hope to have big and uh, substantial impact. Um, and so, very simple, inspiration, validation, acceleration, or polish. This model is a reflection of the, what we, we internally call the voices of games user research. And so these are the different sort of personas that user research data can be, can occupy in the boardroom and the different purposes of the, the play research exists, uh, games user research exists. Why is this important? Firstly, because if uh, we have to, the team has to agree on what they want the outcome to be. Uh, you can't have all of these things. You can't be both polish and validate at the same time. You can't be inspired and accelerate at the same time. You have to roughly agree on what the outcome should be of this research, which helps design that research in a way that's that's uh, resilient to change, uh, resilient to the, the the needs of the team. We already talked about that. It's if you get too hung up on methods, you can divorce it from context from the team's context. Going through this, what are we here for? Mental exercise makes it very much less likely that's going to happen. Are we here to? Oh, do you want to be inspired? Do you want to be validated? Do you want to try and push development forward, or are you trying to polish this thing? And that already shaves off a load of outcomes that would be inappropriate for the project. Yeah, and I think it it creates a really interesting mindset of kind of collaboration towards let's figure out where we where we're where we're going. Mm -hmm. It's not just like well, we gave you the research and you made these decisions and blah, blah, blah. It's it's really kind of having that alignment, which I think is always really important and it really can kind of help elevate, right? Like all of these things are, you've put in the time, you've, you've built up that credibility by doing that real formative research of really thinking about those methods. And now it's saying, how do we how do we expand the value and the impact that we can provide Absolutely. And I think this voices of research, which we've talked about again, yeah. off and on for quite some time now, since you mm. kind of initially were chatting with me about this. And I think it's a super powerful way to approach this kind of problem space or this kind of collaboration and alignment with your partners and thinking that it's not about asking the questions to understand which method you should use, yeah. right? It's like, well, how many players should we have, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah, like this and this and this. It's really trying to, it creates a really interesting opportunity to me because I think it allows you to be that expert. Yeah, 
it yeah, puts your yeah, it puts your expertise and your knowledge at the forefront because you're you're just, you're you're being curious as to what the potential risks are and how you can help them feel confident, right? Absolutely. It's about giving them information to make decisions and feel confident in them. We may not always agree, mm -hmm. but that's 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 for them to make those decisions, but being Absolutely. able to kind of flip that mindset, mm -hmm. this is so powerful in kind of that build and progression. I think so. I think so. I, I use this mindset. I use this mental model. This is how I think about the type of research that that teams ought to be com uh, commissioning and running. Uh, and you're absolutely right to assert that these are risks. Now, I didn't. I didn't frame them as risks. They're not negatively framed. Right? Inspire, accelerate, validate. They're very positively framed. But if you turn them upside down, they are risks to why a game doesn't succeed. So, inspiration research. If we are, our intent is to invest in inspiration, mitigates a lack of novelty or teams not really aligning on what they want or who their players are, right? And they, they're, they're building something disparate of, of what their, their players are playing today or what they love, right? So the risk is that they make something that's either not novel or not, uh, not wanted, but we combat that with inspiration. If we do the same for validation, uh, we, there's a huge risk to just backing the wrong horse, just putting, yeah. putting all our chips on the wrong bet and getting it wrong. When we invest in, in that, with research with the intent to validate, to say, okay, well, actually, we're going to invest in running the piece of research that's necessary to make sure we, we back the right horse and we make the big bet on the right thing. And as I say, that can be a whole game, you know, green light processes, uh, or it can be a small choice like a control scheme or, a, you know, a level or even a, the song that gets put in the trailer or whatever, something relatively small. Acceleration is all about uh, having a great idea but not being able to execute on it. So we've you know, theoretically, there's a, there's a bit of an over, order of operations here, of course, if you, uh, um, as I've been working through, that we've backed the right horse, but when we've got the great idea, but now we need to make sure we execute on it. So that's what acceleration research is all about. And then lastly, on polish, which is, of course, you know, the majority of the majority of the experience comes together in the you know, sort of two minutes to midnight uh, phase of game development. And so we need to uh, make sure that there's that we're not we're mitigating the risk that our product is good but not perfect or good but has you know major craters in it somehow um, so yeah these are aspirational but reflective of real risks to product design which i think is a really nice uh, and powerful uh, powerful lens 100% and i think it's it's interesting cuz i've been thinking about this a lot since the first time i think we chatted about this some time ago but i think it's it's an interesting way to kind of again elevate your positioning as a researcher create that alignment and really cement that kind of I'm going to say bond for lack of a better word but like I think sometimes it's very easy for us to kind of disconnect ourselves from like we just do the research and we just deliver this thing and like it's on them and it's kind of just like we just drop this piece of research at their door and walk away and in the end like we all we all want to see this see this thing succeed Absolutely. and i think when we when we start to use common language mm -hmm. we want to do this our product this and we're kind of starting to combine and really bring together these two levels of expertise and that it's not that we're kind of in the background supporting it's that mm -hmm. we are collaborating we are aligned and i think this mindset is a really interesting one to generate conversation around what a team needs Absolutely. also assessing for ourselves have we already 
evaluated these um, outcomes or mm -hmm. risks mm -hmm. and how can we help provide support because maybe it's that the team comes to us and they're asking specific questions and we can identify that hey you know what actually maybe we need to go back and kind of think about more kind of inspirational mm -hmm. types of mm -hmm. research versus maybe them thinking that they want more this kind of validation piece mm -hmm. it's like okay well where are we at what are the types of decisions and it forces you to think more about all of those different elements within the problem space rather than jumping right into kind of the re the, the comfort of the research zone absolutely absolutely <laughs> you're, you're perfectly right uh, it, th these risks don't go away just because the team stops talking about them yes. i think that's that's the importance here like these are all real enormous risks to the quality of the thing that we're collectively making and just because you're not asking about them anymore because you're you know working on level design on a wednesday doesn't mean that that we're not we haven't already backed the wrong horse or that there's actually something more substantial or foundational here that i should be spending my time as a researcher uh you know evaluating and we'll, and we'll get to this you know we'll get to the polish and acceleration stuff later um, so yeah re really important to uh and this this gives you a sort of holistic top-down view of okay we've got 10 chips to spend, you know, have how much money on research, where are we going to put those chips? Uh, rather than thinking about time or the particular quarters or months or whatever of our project, we're thinking about uh, abstract risk. And we're going to okay, put some chips on inspiration, some of those chips on validation, some on acceleration and some on polish, et cetera. And we're being more maybe holistic and realistic about the types of research that our fantastic research teams should be conducting. So yeah, I, think it's a, I think it's a useful model. And I think it's interesting because sometimes it feels very daunting for some folks when they're like, well, now I got to think strategically, like I got to do this <laughs> thing completely different. And it's like it it is a a different skill set to really mm -hmm. hone and develop, but it doesn't negate everything that you've already built. Mm -hmm. It's only successful when you have that base of foundations and you're Absolutely. really understanding how to apply the methods within these different areas you Absolutely. have to have both pieces and so i think it's sometimes feels very like well now you tell me i have to do a completely different job mm -hmm. like i've had this conversation with multiple people and it's like mm -hmm. well no because you've mastered this thing mm -hmm. if you want to increase to level up i think you mentioned it i'm not sure if it was in this conversation or the one we just had there are people who who want to just stay in the research they just mm -hmm. want to stay at that level they just want to be able to deliver and they want to deliver really high quality research and that's fantastic mm -hmm. it's it's difficult when people are at that point and they start to get frustrated that they're not progressing or their research is not having kind of broader impacts or what have you it's that it's that next transition and it's Absolutely. you have to have 100% a respect for the methods and how to apply them and when they're appropriate and not appropriate to be able to really elevate yourself to this. I think for me, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, it, it is a little bit more kind of a strategic way of thinking because you're still doing the same foundations. It's mm -hmm. just your understanding this problem space you're maybe taking a different approach you're maybe applying methods and you're mixing methods in a different kind of novel way mm -hmm. but they're they're stacked they're not isolated from one another absolutely moreover 
you know by sort of elevating up i don't know from you know getting that sort of hundred thousand foot view i'm sounding like a very buzzwordy guy going and i regret that but uh, for, we'll, we'll keep with the elevation metaphor for a second uh, as you float up the business and you're starting to worry about you know are we making the best game we can uh you, there's loads of allies like you're suddenly going to find loads of new allies on in, in, inside each of these purposes or outcomes are a bunch of other departments a bunch yes. of other professionals a bunch of other people that care really care about each of these things as well and increasingly you know people higher and higher up the pecking order that can make you know big bigger decisions you're going to be allying yourself with them rubbing shoulders with them influencing their decision decisions too but it requires this uh, move away from methods and the nitty-gritty up and up and up towards the the gross responsibility to making a good game holistically good game and and drifting upwards and upwards so yes it's scary and yes it requires a lot more knowledge and about all sorts of different disciplines but at every stage you'll find new allies new professionals working in adjacent disciplines and a lot of very passionate people who share your exact objective to inspire, validate, accelerate, and polish this this incredible thing that that we're making together. So it's not all bad. It's tough, but it's you know, it's not all bad. Well, I think it's it's interesting because you kind of move from this point of this kind of internal common shared language among researchers mm -hmm. to a common shared terminology and approach with all of the different partners. Mm -hmm. Like you were saying, whether it be those working directly in within a production that you may be embedded in all the way up to kind of more business folks or business partners mm -hmm. in being able to really understand where a lot of people will go wrong at times is it's like, I'm gonna take two steps back because my thoughts were ahead of me, but <laughs> it's this idea of like when you're in academia and you're mm -hmm. at a poster session, mm -hmm. It's like, come see my poster. And you have your poster on the wall and everybody comes by and you're like, come care about my thing. And you're showing them and you're talking about it. And they're like, yeah, that's super cool. And then they kind of carry on with their day. Sometimes we make the mistake of presenting our findings like that. Mm -hmm. Hey, so everybody come over and like see this cool thing that I did. Mm -hmm. And it's you're speaking in a language that maybe they they don't understand it's either too technical it's you're speaking about in, you know kind of these methods that are our language that don't necessarily shared with your partners mm -hmm. and it's really being able to say okay this thing now translates into this broader outcome and you're kind of learning how to flex those muscles a bit to say like i'm still doing fundamentally the same thing I was doing before. It's not actually that different. It's just the way in which I'm preparing for that piece of research. Maybe it's taking more time because you're having a lot more conversations with people. You're probably having very different types of conversations with a broader audience of people. The way in which you're delivering your findings is probably very different because you're talking about them in a very different voice. You're not talking about them from description cause impact of your issue <laughs> which we've all been through and it's always very important to be able to understand that base foundation but it helps us to have a model for how we deliver those findings as well if you have this approach going in it allows you to cater that message to be easily understood on the outset completely agree completely agree in my experience you're exactly right this is how 
game development thinks. This is how game development companies as businesses think. They think about risks, they think about outcomes, they think about risk mitigation, they think about processes and, and conversations that make decisions that are that are more correct. And so you're absolutely right that this is a this is an exercise in learning how to communicate better with people that are not researchers and don't think like you, but they are in fact you know thinking about the business and the, that you're you're a part of and you're, you're sort of partially responsible for. So yeah, I don't I don't know if other disciplines other than games user research, I'm sure they do like probably struggle to make this leap as well, moving from you know technical expertise to a sort of broader business expertise. Um, but in my view, as you say, like methods are an interesting lens on this. They they are activities that reduce risk but you yes. have to you have to like have the wall you know you have to have the, the enlightenment to be like oh okay that's my job i do things that reduce the likelihood that we're making a bad game and that that one mindset shift i think allows you to unlock as you suggest unlock more meaningful conversations with more varied stakeholders up and down the business and actually win yourself credibility and trust from a from a broader spectrum of individuals 100 percent. and i think what's what I want to make sure that anybody that's listening is taking into consideration as well. It's like, you don't have to like wait to have this mindset until you have this really firm foundation, right? It's that even as maybe if you're listening to this and you're thinking like, okay, I want to level up my skills or I want to maybe try and make sure I'm pushing my impact, but I may be still early career. You can start to ask yourself some of these questions, start to think about how you're approaching these different conversations and like you were just saying thinking about the purpose mm -hmm. why why are we here why are we delivering this information mm -hmm. how are teams using it what is going to be helpful for them and starting to build this kind of instinct for yourself to really question that when you're preparing your research. Maybe it doesn't fundamentally change because you're still learning and you're still trying to apply all of these like millions of pieces that we've chatted about, but catching yourself to think about maybe some of these different um, kind of voices and these different kind of buckets that you can think about and how how am I going to get the information from from my partners and being able to design this piece of research. Maybe you yes. ask a couple of more questions. Maybe you take some time to really think through what are the consequences of the method that I have chosen? Does that still allow me to deliver the information that my team needs to help reduce that risk, to help mm -hmm. reduce that level of uncertainty that they are facing? Mm -hmm. And starting kind of building that reflex can be a really great way, even if you're still fairly early career, right? When I had this kind of huge mindset shift, I was still fairly early in my career at this position at, at UB, and I was still really trying to kind of put all those pieces together. But that was really the moment that like my entire approach changed mm -hmm. because I really was thinking about what is the outcome? Why is this important? And mm -hmm. how can I help people make more confident decisions and reduce that level of risk towards the decisions that need to be made? Completely agree. I completely agree. Uh, so yeah, don't don't sit on your thumbs if you're a researcher thinking you know I'd love to move my career forward or you know think a bit more strategically. Uh, you know, first of all, you can definitely write 
little plan, little project plans for like, oh, hey, I had a thought about, you know, I'd love if we understood our players better. I'd love to, maybe we can run this piece of inspiration research. You know, nine nine times out of ten, that's going to be an instant no, but you know, you know, I need, I need someone only needs to say once uh, that, you know, okay, we should entertain that idea. Moreover, you can definitely in, in, introduce a little bit of the other voices into all the research you're doing. Let's say we're doing, you know, really iterative work, really, you know, sprint to sprint work. Um, how can I get a little bit of inspiration voice in there you know how do i just talk a little bit about you know one player's uh you know maybe i find a player that's particularly passionate about this or loves a game mode that we we've subsequently discontinued or i don't know how do we add some inspiration to help these development teams not forget that yes i know we're interested in the fun score in level 10 but we're also interested <laughs> in the people we're making games for and having yeah. building the the development team's intuition about these people and what they love about our product super easy to get like can't see the wood, wood for trees uh, in these you know, iterative tests of actually like let's take a bit of a deeper breath think about how we can learn a bit more about the people that that are playing our games and you could you could take examples from any of those four voices and just try and slot them into uh, slot them into other uh, aspects of research yeah I think it's super interesting because I think it's easy to kind of fall into this idea that I'm looking at everything in kind of a vacuum or I'm looking at everything at kind of this one slice of at this moment of time mm -hmm. and it's easy to get carried away with all right I just need to do this one thing right now and so it's kind of this moment where you're operating as a researcher and you're just constantly heads down mm -hmm. right I'm just doing this one thing right in front of me and like they've asked me to do this one piece of research and I've taken the slice but thinking through these different voices and these different kind of ways of that we can think about this research, it allows you and kind of forces you to take that step back mm -hmm. to really think about the entire picture mm -hmm. because you, it's so easy to fall into the trap of like, this is an issue right here. And it's like, mm -hmm. well, is it? <laughs> mm -hmm. And you can kind of force yourself to think about, yeah, maybe there's players that are discussing something that's really interesting and you can share that information as a discussion, not being so locked into just like, this was the plan, this was the objectives, this mm -hmm. thing, this thing, this thing. It kind of helps you create this more flexible framework rather than like very rigid guidelines of things. Completely agree. Completely agree. I think the more, also the more time you spend thinking about these decisions, these sort of outcomes, the more you'll get a sense for how individual departments contribute to them. So thinking about community management, for example, are super powerful in the sort of voice of the player in the boardroom and, you know, influencing and getting some sense of, and, and, and in many ways, inspiring the dev team. Like they're a really inspirational, a source of inspiration. They've got stories from players, you know, fan art, they're sharing memes, they're like, they're gathering stories and, and influence from the player base and inspiring the development team. And so, you know, working out how to partner with those teams or work with them, understanding their place in the development process is super, super important. Again, for getting, I think, a holistic yes. picture of how games are made and how decisions are made inside this, this complicated organization. Yes, 100%. I think community is such a phenomenal example of shared objectives mm -hmm. and shared goals of kind of how we want to be partnered and aligned with kind of the the production partners and mm -hmm. being able to look at how we can share resources, how we can share our approach, share mm -hmm. the way in which we're kind of thinking through, you know, and leveraging, right? Like you said, they have a connection with the team that maybe we mm -hmm. won't always have. And so we can chat with them. 
you know, have you seen something like this? We want to approach our research in this way and maybe you partner with them to talk to the community directly to offer some help in giving them some support in doing some research based on some of the accesses that they have or being able to understand that there are people doing this type, maybe we can focus on something else and we can come together and take a multifaceted approach with these different voices and bring them together and help kind of drive that kind of influence and the impact that that individual piece could have. So, so important, so important. Yeah, and really, really beautifully put, uh, finding those allies and to, to for the sort of greater good of the, of the uh, and because if, you know, if they're not allies to some extent, they're adversaries, right? If you're not working with these folks, then you'll, you'll seem to be working against them. And so it's extremely important uh yeah we're, we're not the we're not the only voice of the player in the boardroom I and mean, it's yes. extremely, extremely important to recognize that games research is a voice not the voice of the player in the boardroom and so uh yeah we've got to work out how to collaborate with with other people to make sure that we're you know a, able when it when push comes to shove to you know to address some of these big validation pieces for example that we're using every tool every tool in the toolkit okay we're yeah. back to methods now we've, <laughs> <laughs> we've come like full circle methods. Do you have, do you have final thoughts of what you want people to understand or what you can share of how people can maybe apply these voices or ways in which they can kind of start thinking about them? Yeah, of course. Uh, all right. So I guess the first point is about the importance of asking questions, uh, not taking for face value what you're asked to do. Uh, of course, being respectful of, the, of your development partners, making sure that you're you know, courteous and listening that yes, okay, that I understand this is the fir your first thought on the kind of research that you want to do, but I'd love to just hear a bit more about the context of development and what you want to do with this data and what it's really for, and maybe talk a little bit about the you know the other the other risks that there could be, uh, and starting to imbibe the conversation to own the conversation about what's the right thing we should do next. Within that, you're not uh, limiting yourself to think about methods. This is not about the, the things that I know how to do or the things that I know have been done, but instead about risk mitigation, about having a really top down view of why would this product not succeed? Why can this next feature, this next release, this next sprint, why would that not succeed in, in a very holistic sense? And if it's useful, using the model I described, inspiration, validation, acceleration, polish, like why are we here? What are we hoping to get from this research? If you do that, you can win better credibility. You can run more impactful research. You can be potentially more substantially influenced in making a better game. Uh, you can involve uh, more of your peers and colleagues, in, uh, which is exciting and fun and uh, influential. And you'll also take your first steps in moving yourself away from being a games user research methods expert to being a uh, you know, insights leader, an influencer, a you know, a trusted and powerful and passionate individual trusted by your game studio uh, or company to you know have a holistic and trusted take uh, on on how these games are going to be made and what the teams are going to be doing, and that will get you across the the, the chasm that exists in front of you as a methods expert and give you some some forward momentum and progression to. Uh, so yeah, to be the best influence on, on game development that you can be. I have nothing else to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> that was perfect. I love it. Thank you so much. Pleasure. I'm sure that we probably could have continued this conversation for 
many more hours. And <laughs> if people want to hear us to continue this conversation for more hours, yeah, please let it. us know. We have many of other topics that we would like to chat about. So if anyone is curious for anything they want to hear more about, please let us know. I know that we would be more than happy to sit down again and continue and talk about other topics as well. So. Seb, thank you so much for Absolute your pleasure. time. We've been yeah, talking for quite some time now, but I, I think it was really fantastic. Always a pleasure of kind of going through these things. And um, yeah, we will see everyone again for a future episode. Super. Thanks so much. Have a good one.